I'm Billy. I'm Drew. This is Pilot Club, a bit of a Saturday morning um, extra, well not an extra episode, we've been about a, a week and a half behind, haven't we? So we have, we make, have. Making up for lost time play, Yeah, playing catch up, because the TV pipeline is, mm. you know, is really, uh, I guess, how would you describe it, robust at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We, we, try to, um, we try to do it every Wednesday, but just stuff gets in the way or stuff drops at different times. So. Life happens. Life, life happens. <laughs> exactly. It's quite atmospheric, a little rainy Saturday morning. So it's, yeah, I think it's a, a, good, a good tone. Well, our current kind of you know ritual after the podcast is to watch the X Files. So yeah. this, is, this is perfect weather, perfect kind of Pacific Northwest weather. It is. It to is to dip into the X Files and maybe order my favorite um, sandwich in the inner west. Well, we are, do- which well, is going to be very pertinent yes, to this episode, yes, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it's yeah. going to be a very sandwich centric, sandwich centric episode. episode. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to really delve deep into the sandwich making process. And in, in terms of the shape of this week's um, episode two, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because we're starting with you know Lord of the Rings, an epic series, mm. but then everything else is short form. Yeah, like every other episode is yeah. 20 25 minutes yeah and tight focus tight from focus. a very broad yeah you know, exactly. epic canvas down to you know a sandwich canvas yeah exactly <laughs> or like your well, your archive choice a quibi show yeah. so it's it's we've yeah. got we've got the very big and the very small yeah this week yeah 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 we don't discriminate no that's true well, although medium shows aren't big this week we're not going for the medium so much <laughs> that's true that's yeah. true we'll, we'll make up for it with like mid mid-length shows next next episode that's right that's right so we'll on to our first show and obviously this show is you know attracted enormous hype you know, this is Jeff Bezos. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, big swing. Mm. Uh, he's bet the farm on this on mm. this show, and the show is the Lord of the Rings: colon, The Rings of Power. Mm. Yeah, double so. rings. <laughs> <laughs> if you were if you were concerned that you were not going to get enough rings, <laughs> although <laughs> they double down on the rings. Although there aren't any rings in the pile. No, there are no rings in uh, the pile. <laughs> not, not knowing the mythology in a huge amount of detail, I was like, mm. have I missed an allusion yeah. to the rings? Caveat emptor. Yep. Okay. <laughs> no rings in this pile, okay. but perhaps foreshadowing the rings to come. See, I, I was looking for the foreshadowing, <laughs> but I couldn't see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, we didn't really see anything go on fingers or no. any sort of proposal. So there was no any... ring adjacent imagery, even. <laughs> no, no, yep. no. Well, at the end, I guess there was a circular motif. So that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, so, do you know the backstory about how this uh, this uh, series was created? I don't know. So, what's what's the story? Okay, well, it is a obviously a, a fantasy television series. Um, it's based most prominently on the appendices oh, that I did of, read. The, yeah, yeah. of the, uh, yeah, the Lord yeah. of the Rings mm. um, novels by J.R.R. Tolkien. Mm. And it makes me think, um, should other you know, TV series be based on appendices it's interesting, of famous it? novels? It's like I mean, the, the Apocrypha yeah, of the Lord. Yeah. And on that note, too, something that's interesting, like reading about it, is it seems like the appendices deal with like thousands of years... Of, of history of, of law yeah. that's condensed. I mean, something. I mean, how long is this going to be? This this series. I wonder. Like, is, is it? Is uh, it... I imagine, given the you know the amount of money invested into mm. this, I would expect many seasons. Because one of my first thoughts watching it, like this, is the most expensive TV series. Most expensive, yeah, ever made. costing over a billion dollars. Yeah. Because something I, I wondered watching it, like what I would love to see is use that money and guarantee like fifteen or twenty seasons. I mean, I, I'd be happier with slightly lower production values if I knew that it was going to have that kind of sweep because this this to me is like Game of Thrones insofar as it seems like they're setting up a story which you know we'll come back to you know the actual structure of the pilot in a bit but just you know initial big thoughts this seems like a story that could conceivably stretch for 15 or 20 seasons. Well I think that's the hope. So you think that, that that's well, what they're actually going for? I, yeah. I imagine it would be mm. um, although we've seen with I guess the streaming economy is slightly mm. unusual in that they try to have all that, I guess, the emphasis now, especially in Netflix, is going for shorter, well, that's my shorter um, seasons 
uh, and greater turnover of seasons to attract and retain subscribers. So this, this is my concern from the outset. Because have you watched any more on House of House of the Dragon? I have not. This is a little bit of a spoiler, but it jumps in time. Oh, so okay. right from the outset, House of the Dragon seems to be kind of conceding that that epic scope, that season season you know, after season scope, is not kind of possible anymore mm. in as you said the streaming economy so that's just an initial thought about this is i really hope they use some of that budget to make it really long because mm. it it needs that room to breathe i think in terms of its scale mm. well i guess if you're gonna if you're gonna do that you really need to bet on its quality yeah true um, which is uh, which is another question mm. um so a bit, a bit more background about mm. this uh, series it's based uh what's set in the second age of middle earth mm. so in that long historiographical uh, section of the appendices, like yep. you said, there's a very, a very, you know, a very long uh, time passage that mm. takes place. So this is obviously set in, uh, you know, a time thousands of years before mm. the the events of the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. So it has a number of uh, subplots here, and mm. the main plot, and the closest thing I guess we could say to a protagonist in this series is Galadriel, mm. who is the fairy queen from or Elfin Queen mm. uh, from the first, the Kate, or from the from the uh, the Lord of the Rings, the Kate Blanchett character, the Kate Blanchett yep. character, and we have a a young actress who plays, um, you know, who we later assume mm. will be uh, Kate Blanchett, and she, you know, for casting someone who looks like a young Kate Blanchett, perfect. It, it is pretty. I actually had a moment where effective. I was like, "Is this a relation of Kate? Like, she looks so much like her at points." Yeah, yeah. I, I thought I thought she was a really good protagonist too. Like, I thought mm. she actually she actually gives it a really good. Propulsion. I, in a way, I kind of wanted more of her in mm. the series. I mean, mm. I think she—it's most structured when she's centre stage. Mm. I thought. Yeah. 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 So, some of the events that will take place over the course of this second age that mm. are that are foreshadowed in the in the appendices. Obviously, the forging of the rings of power, yep. which was obviously the main um, plot point of the Lord of the Rings. Mm. Uh, the rise of the Dark Lord Sauron. Mm. And the fall of the island kingdom of Numenor, and the alliance between the elves and men. Mm-hmm. So all of these, all of these key events yep. are, you know, set in chain or in train in this in this pilot. And, and the it, pilot it is, almost touches base with each of those subplots, doesn't it? It's almost like in four acts. Yes, or three or four yes. acts. Yeah. So you know, the, the clearest the clearest uh, archetype here is you might say Game of Thrones, yep. given how cartographic yeah. <laughs> the uh, the stories are and how much they're woven together by the geography of Middle Earth. But also I thought in a way that was very true to Tolkien himself as well. Like mm. I, I remember when the first Lord of the Rings films came out, um, I'd never read it. So I kind of, I read it kind of in a hurry so I could mm. appreciate the first film. And the thing that kind of surprised me most about Fellowship of the Ring was, as you said, like how cartographic and topographical it was. Like it, a lot of it is kind of fantasy geography as much as narrative like mm. especially the early parts of, Lord, of fellowship of the ring mm. is just the characters basically moving through and mapping mm. a series of middle earth spaces mm. um which i think is what gives it such great resonance as a quest narrative and mm. i think why the first the first book and film in the in the trilogy is actually my favorite mm. so i thought this actually was quite true to that as well like it's especially the first i mean the first half of the pilot I think has a really great kind of quest narrative and a really compelling quest narrative. I think it it fades away a bit towards the end, but it may be just worth kind of clarifying for the listeners that the, the first part sees Galadriel tracking Sauron 
you know, to the very recesses of the, the known world. The northern waste. The far northern <laughs> waste. And actually wanting, I mean, she's already beyond, I think, the known world, but she mm. wants to go even further. Mm. And because they, they arrive at a kind of remote orc castle and see a footprint of Sauron that indicates he's gone on and is leaving a sign for the orcs to follow him even further mm. into this way. So mm. I think that 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 scene really kind of, that opening sequence really captures that quest mm you know, narrative and that kind of topographical sublimity of the Fellowship mm. of the Ring. And I think the next bit when we come back to the, is it the um, half, the kind of half, like the, what, what are the people called? The little, are they, are they hobbits yet? They're not called hobbits, they're no. called harefoots. Harefoots, yeah. We come back to their world and for a moment it seems like there's going to be a lull, but then Sauron's footprint appears there as well. So I mm. think you have this, or what seems to be Sauron's footprint. I think it's a wolf footprint. It's a wolf footprint, but, yeah. but something to do with Sauron. So you have like this really great movement between different landscapes and this kind of quest trajectory that, that I think is very true to what I found most distinctive about Tolkien when I read it. So that, that I thought worked really well. Yeah, and having the the map and the Yeah. It keeps you it keeps you centered yeah. and you you're you're moving from the northern wastes to the middle kingdom, which yep. is the, the kingdom of the of the elves and the yep. and the harefoots, and then the southern kingdom, which is the kingdom of men. Yep. So there is that sense of uh, continuity just through mm. through that kind of juxtaposition of places. It's a bit of a flashback too, but the maps almost reminded me. Remember the old BBC production of the Chronicles of Narnia mm. and the opening credit sequence, da, 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 da. like the map felt modelled on that too. And I guess there's a connect, like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis are quite close, right? Like mm. it's fantasy, but it's medieval, mm. Christian-inflected fantasy. And like Narnia, this feels quite contemplative and reflective compared to House of the Dragon and Game yeah. of Thrones. Like it's still got violence, but I feel I'm so used to that Game of Thrones mode of fantasy that this, yeah, this felt contempt, <laughs> positively <laughs> contemplative by, yeah, that's right. by contrast. It's a, it's, a, it's a kind of more beguiling type of fantasy. Gentler. But it is high fantasy, though. Absolutely, and yeah. obviously, your fantasy traditionally has been of quite a polarizing genre. Mm. So for Amazon to bet the farm mm. on on this genre is an interesting play, and I, I think, and it's mm. it certainly you know requires the audience to be quite attentive to all these different plot points, different worlds, mm. different characters, you know, different accents. And I, I must admit, I was a bit confused by the end. <laughs> Hence why I relegated it to you to explain this week. I mean, it's funny because I feel like something we've seen, and this brings me back to my concern, like it feels like something we've seen a lot on this podcast are ambitious fantasy series that don't give themselves time to breathe. Yes. They're compressed too much. And again, that's my concern here. Like it just... Well, there's a lot of exposition in the opening. So yeah. the opening already takes us through, you know, mm. epochs mm. of this of this second age. Mm. Um, well, thousands you know, of Sauron's years. Sauron's fall and... Yeah. The, you know the leeching of evil from the world, and the mm. you know the, the uh, military prowess of the the elven kingdom, and mm. and uh, it, it does take you a while to actually get get oriented. But then conversely, I found the last third or so, I didn't really know what was happening. No, I mean, it comes to a great conclusion, like without giving too much away, it ends with Galadriel at the very moment at which she's about to be taken into the afterlife, you know, receive eternal you know life choosing to go back and fight Sauron mm. as a kind of comet streaks over. It's got a great ending. But, yeah, just something about that movement from a very expository first half, which I still think had a great quest momentum, to a, a, a last third that I didn't fully follow. I just have slight concerns about pacing. Yeah. Um, 
it's tricky, isn't it, with fantasy viewers? Because on the one hand, you've got an inbuilt fan base for fantasy viewers, mm. but they can be amongst the most judgmental yes. as well in terms of world building. So yeah. it's, it's, it's and I think a fine it, line. It's fair to say this has been received critically with mild praise, but yes. I think amongst the fan community, I don't know. I think this has been more polarizing. And it's, it's almost like you sense from some of the critical acclaim, it's. It's as a lot of it's just testifying to the scale of it. Yeah, like to, when something is this big, you, you can't give it a terrible review. Yes, yes, but and it's in all honesty, it, it is not bad. Well, I, I thought it is. I found it mildly entertaining. I thought the first it. like two thirds, like the first two thirds, and especially that first bit with the quest and with the kind of half or the half minute and the the footprint. I thought that I was like surprised. I thought that had genuine propulsion. I was mm. like, this is really redolent. Mm. Of, Especially when they're in the ice caves. When they're in the ice caves. The ice troll. Well, I liked, and I like that idea of like seeking out Sauron but coming across little miscellaneous monsters along the yeah. way. Because I remember something else that really surprised me like when I first read Fellowship of the Ring was how kind of linear it was. Like it is just like one trip. Mm. It is one walk. Mm. And, like, you know, compared to other fantasy I've read, I was like, this is, this is a very simple but amazing way to structure an adiv. You're just moving from one point in the landscape to another. Mm. So... It was very grounded. It went from very went from sort of very small scale, intimate, uh, pastoral, yep. and then gradually opened itself exactly. up to this more epic canvas. Exactly. And I think that's a great inlet for especially non-fantasy fans because yep. so often they start with this, you know, enormous, you know, world-building enterprise mm. where characterization is is you know subordinated mm. to you know you know great historical you know, epic sweep. Mm. So here we have a little bit of both. Mm. And I don't, yeah, like you said, I prefer that more intimate character-oriented Absolutely. Um, fantasy. And, and I the, think even something like um, Game of Thrones mm. did also start with that more tight focus. Mm. You know, it started Beyond the Wall, you know, the, the Jon Snow character, you know, mm. Winterfell, and then it gradually, gradually expanded, expanded the world. I mean, it's and yeah, and that's interesting too, because like just what you've said makes me realise in a different kind of way what I found compelling about Fellowship, which is it, it, it almost starts with naturalism, mm. like it just does start with this world that feels like our world mm. more or less, mm. and then it, exactly then the fantasy coordinates come in. Yeah, so I guess it was a bit disappointing. Like I was hoping that that quest to the kind of wild north. I feel like if this season had thirty, thirty, if, if this show had thirty seasons, yeah, that would. It'll be at least an yeah. entire episode. Why not just why not just have the whole pilot with that journey well, exactly. to the wild north? That like, was that was that was great. The moment, yeah, I did like it when they jumped back to the kind of pastoral world, and there was that trace of the north there as well. And I, yeah. and I did like the continuity with Galadriel. But by the time they brought in the third mm. subplot, I thought it had lost and the, the, a bit of momentum. The elf, the elf human plot yeah. point, I thought was quite weak. Yeah, and just a little bit opaque, mm. like in terms of like. It, again, it's that it's that challenge of trying to trying to monetize something that is so epic in sweep and scope. With, mm. and, I mean, and you know, it's very it's very ambitious too, because like obviously it's drawing upon, I mean, it's drawing upon this Tolkien apocrypha, but also obviously adding a lot of stuff, mm. but also trying to do it on the small screen. I mean, mm. something's got to give, and I just feel like what has to give is the length of it. It's, it's, there's got to be a commitment to an epic mm, length mm, or scope yeah. from the outset. So that was my sense of it. I was just, yeah. I, I hope this doesn't become another one of those relics of a kind of aborted epic, <laughs> yeah. you know, that we see in a lot of <laughs> a, a lot of sci-fi television. world building, yeah. yeah. I mean, an uncharitable um, reading of this mm. would be, it's kind of 
um, Lord of the Rings cosplay. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of stilted dialogue. Yeah. A lot of you know name checking. Or just Lord <laughs> a, of the a lot of a lot of you know um, a lot of you know dramatic entrances mm. and reveals and name reveals. Elrond. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I, They're putting the team back together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. And in that sense, maybe you know what it does recall is the final season of Game of Thrones. Yeah. Which is more airbrushed, yeah. more, more benign in some ways, mm. and much more a conscious act of fan service. Mm. So, mm. I mean, it's a thing too. Like something else that surprised me about Fellowship was that it was quite slow. You know, like in terms of mm. what happens in it, like there are big events, mm. but the pacing is very slow. Mm. Like, mm. you know, there'll be some major confrontation and then he talks about mountains for a chapter, mm. you know. So like mm. that slowness, I think, is actually what makes Fellowship and the whole trilogy so immersive. Mm. And actually, I think when it gets, you know, so this, this was more like Two Towers. Like, mm. I remember when I read Two Towers, I thought it had such an awkward structure, like mm. being divided into those two basically separate books. And I was so impressed by the way Peter Jackson blended them. I was like, this is a way it was. Mm. It, it, it needs to be done. Mm. But it's almost like this has gone in the opposite direction. It's it's segmented it in the way that the Two Towers book is segmented. So, mm. and mm. For, the, for that reason, the pacing in Two Towers is weird. So in a weird way, I wanted this to be, in a way, slower, mm. more focused, more immersive. Just spend an episode just sinking us mm. deep into one part of this world. Yeah, it yeah, I agree. really deep into one I part agree. of this world. I agree, I agree. Yeah, probably the closest analogue of the later seasons of, of Game of Thrones, and the last where one it was particular. very peripatetic. Yeah, you know the, the the worlds themselves were awkwardly and disjointedly mm. connected, and all a bit benign. Yeah, which the, which works here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of this was filmed in New Zealand, so mm. um, at the height of the COVID pandemic, so oh, it does okay. have very beautiful landscapes. Yeah. And you, oh. know, you can see, you can see the this, you know, obviously the budget well, was, has I, is doing a lot of heavy lifting. I was here. going to ask you about that. Like it's like a billion dollars, right? Looks mm. better. What's it gone to? Because this, to me, didn't look or seem that much better than anything. Well, I'm curious. Where do, you, where do you reckon the money goes to? Well, I imagine the the filming on site, okay. which is very expensive, okay. and which you know a lot of a lot of these epic fantasy series now would be set against green screen. Okay, uh, it's like know? remote locations, yeah. accessing remote locations. Yeah, remote okay. location shooting. Um, obviously, the cast of you know actors is quite huge, quite wide. Yeah, this, the scale of it. But, um, I, mean, I imagine there'd be battle sequences that, yeah, you know, right. later later on. Um, do you think it looked like a billion-dollar show? <laughs> I, I did, you know, like, I mean, I know it's not the only way to judge it, but that's how it's been hyped. I didn't really think it looked... I mean, did it look that much better than House of the Dragon? That much better? Like, It had a greater scope. I mean, there were lots yeah. of... You know, the landscapes were impressive. You know, the mm. drone photography. Yeah. Um, I do like my drone photography, <laughs> but... You didn't like all those New Zealand epic yeah. landscapes? I, I say a lot of it... I thought it was actually hard to tell if it was green screened or shot. Like I thought, okay. I thought, yeah. I mean, it's not a, crit- a criticism exactly. I was just, I was just a bit confounded by. Okay. Where maybe the- that's the effect of watching this on a small screen. Well, exactly. Maybe that's. There's also like one of the half foot who looked like Mel Gibson. Did you see <laughs> yes. that? Like, that guy? I did. I was, like, I was like, for a moment, I was like, is that Mel Gibson <laughs> playing? That would be a polarized. In Middle Earth, that would be. Yeah, yeah, that would be. Yeah. If he was in Middle Earth, though, he'd be out for revenge. Yeah, yeah, no. Bloody revenge. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, look. So, are you in or are you out, Billy? I think I'm. I think I'm out. Like, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't dislike it. I mean, it's funny. It, it made me think too. Like, and I know the, it's not entirely fair to compare it to this, but it was such an event when those Lord of the Rings films came out. Like, yeah. I, I wasn't a Tolkien. Like I said, I read the books only before they came out. I wasn't a yeah. Tolkien fan, but just, you know. The kind of the buzz around them and the kind of the the convergence of so much around them. This I know this can't. I mean, 
on the one hand, I, on the one, I guess this can't match it at some level. But with a billion dollars behind it, you'd think it should be able to generate something comparable in our mm. day and age. And I just, mm. I found it a bit meh. Like with that, <laughs> I, I, I thought the opening. I was surprised. I was like, wow, this, this actually is pulling me in. And mm. you know, for something which has so much going into it, mm. by the end it was still watchable. But I didn't really know what was happening. Yeah. And I just. It was a bit disappointing, I think. Yeah. I yeah. didn't dislike it. I, 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 didn't, I, mean. I never found it boring. Yeah, I know what you mean. I um, I was a big fan of the books mm. um, growing up. And almost as with the first, the opening scene of the Fellowship of the Ring, I yeah. thought, this is incredible. The this Ring is, in the River. Yes, this is yeah. exactly how I imagined yeah. this book to be. Yeah, right. Um, and it was it was sublime. Mm. Um here, mm. not being such a huge fan of the appendices, in fact, <laughs> I started reading them and I was like, no, yeah, yeah. I'm out on these. <laughs> well, so it's a challenge, I guess, isn't it? Like, it's actually, yeah. it's like turning in, uh, like a, I don't know, a like dry just historical like, document. Like a chronicle <laughs> into a TV series. Yeah, yeah. I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. This is, this was never boring. No. It was, but it, it was, was never, fine. <laughs> it was totally it fine. It was fine. But for something that cost a billion dollars, yeah. you know, you were probably hoping that there'd be, <laughs> there'd be a little more to pull you in. Um, but I feel I feel like I've got to give this the benefit of the yeah, doubt yeah. to be to be part of the conversation, mm. and perhaps also they might take a few more narrative risks sure. as the series goes on. Mm. Um, and I'm curious. I mean, in a way, like what I'm saying, I think is actually pretty basic. I just I just thought that it needed to be a bit more immersive and atmospheric, and just the story needed to be tighter. I yeah. mean, this is what concerns me. This is fairly you've got all the billion dollar production but just storytelling yeah just storytelling yeah and that's peter jackson does do that <laughs> yeah. maybe not so much in the hobbit films <laughs> but in the <laughs> would you think this is closer this is well, more I gonna, hobbit i was going to say i was, was going to say that because one of the reasons i never read lord of the rings you know as a kind of you know teenager when i was a kid i read the hobbit and i was like this is the most boring book i've ever like i it's I, I <laughs> not good is it well i i didn't get it like i mean i love yeah. narnia i love chronicles of yeah. pride and i love dark is rising i loved all yeah. these ya Overrated. fantasy things but reading the hobbit i was like that this what so <laughs> this this I thought was actually close like there and back again this is actually a bit close of that so yeah but also as you said certainly that same weird late Tolkien style of Peter Jackson and mm. and because I guess the Hobbit films are a little the Hobbit is a little bit more benign than Lord of the Rings that weird slightly anodyne mm. sanitized feel you see here I, I agree is mm. also in those Hobbit films mm. which are so also the screensaver aesthetic the screensaver aesthetic <laughs> exactly and they're also they're not I mean in, in the same way that this is you know unprecedentedly expensive they had that unprecedented frame rate so yeah. both both kind of the, the Hobbit series and this series have a kind of gimmick to them but mm. underneath it there, there are mm. issues with mechanics mm. yeah I think yeah. So, well I guess they're both products of enormous hubris yeah exactly exactly <laughs> yeah yeah so they, they have that in common uh, so look I'm a tentative in but yeah. I think only because of the the scale and ambition of this series I think true to the gentle spirit of the show I'm a gentle out <laughs> <laughs> okay on to our next show this week and this is you know something we talk about quite a bit in the podcast is just the weird rhythm of shows dropping yeah. so it's the bear is this show and about you know about a month six weeks ago we were just waiting for the bear every week to drop because mm. it was being hyped it was being reviewed and i'd actually all but forgotten about it mm. when we went on to disney plus last night to, you know a couple of nights ago to watch the x-files and just there it was yeah all with, all episodes at one time with no fanfare so yeah. it's just it's weird like it's obviously a kind of headline show today, but it's something I haven't thought about for a couple of weeks. Mm, and we're perhaps, think, and yeah. thinking about continually about six weeks yeah. ago. So Perhaps Australian broadcasters didn't have confidence that this subject matter would translate well, I, to I, Australian audiences. I, I agree with that. And that's, <laughs> let's start with that. I mean, just, just to give the plot, it's a very... Well, I think we should start with 
So this show is, is about a sandwich shop. Yep. Oh, oh. And and we, I know that you're a huge fan of sandwiches. So. I'm all about sandwiches. So, <laughs> so what makes you a sandwich guy? Okay, so <laughs> yeah, so it's worth just saying, just before I say, very quickly, created by Christopher Storer, uh, Jeremy Allen White plays a character called Carmen Bizzato who returns home to work at his family sandwich store after yeah. his brother commits suicide. That's it. The whole pilot is just him returning to the store and making a mm. sandwich. Mm. So There are lots of scenes of, sand- oh, of sandwiches being so, made look, in the process of being made, ingredients being yeah, yeah. sourced. So to, to me, like, I think sandwich Sandwiches are the platonic ideal of food. <laughs> like sandwiches are my my uh, my perfect food. Like, you know that they say that like um, when when people want to test a chef, like in a fancy mm. restaurant, they don't get them to make some elaborate meal. They get them to make an omelette. Yes, because you know making a perfect omelette that just that that perfect yet you know and in some ways simple yet elusive combination of a couple of ingredients is one of the hardest things to do as a chef. I feel yeah. like the sandwich is like that. Yeah. And the sandwich operates a bit like that in this series. And I think one of my pet hates is the way that Australia has imported British pub food at the expense of American diner food. Yes. So just good example, like last holidays, Carl and I were in Orange. We went for a drive one day to Forbes. Um, no offence if anyone here comes from Forbes, but middle of the day in Forbes... Oh, you're not going to alienate the Forbes not gonna, audience. Not going to alienate, hopefully. You're really relying on them. Middle of the day in Forbes, like, you know... All the places we went to were just like the stuff they had on the menu was like roasts, like sausages. This is in the middle of summer, like mm. in Australia. And I was like, how is it that in, in, in piping hot weather, like in a 40 degree day, the main thing you can get for lunch is just like hot dinner food. Yeah. And it's, it's pub culture. Like whereas yeah. in, in, in America, every corner store, every deli you go to can make you like a really like incredible, like the boar's head variety. You know, they have, they have these... These yeah. kind of all these different ingredients yeah. that all delis have. I remember going. Also, they've got some quite good uh, sandwich chain restaurants. Sandwich as chain well. restaurants, so the, exactly. The Earl of the Earl of Sandwich, amazing. Which is and, a, and Boar's Head is yeah as yeah, well. Fantastic. But so I, I think it's something we've talked about how like you know in America you just have this whole other stratum of food that you don't have here, which is somewhere between you know the greasiest fast food and high cuisine. You have kind of modest diner or chain food. So mm. one mm. of the best you know in Sydney we have all these indie burger places. But still, the two best burgers I've had in my life were at Shake Shack, one mm. of those mid-range chains, and um, Five Napkins or Four Napkins, which is just like a family restaurant. So mm. incredible burgers served without any kind of fuss or flair. Sa- same goes for sandwiches. Mm. Like the sandwich it's burger. Good lunch food. So you, you want that lunch food where it's not too greasy, it's exactly. not too heavy, it's not too fatty, uh, but it does have those good ingredients. It's filling. Yeah, and it's filling and satisfying. But so, you're right. It's yeah, it's embracing lunch. Lane. It's embracing lunch as a kind of event in itself. Like, whereas I feel like in Australia we tend to like it's very self-hating when it comes like wraps. Yeah. Yes. Like what are wraps? Like <laughs> wraps. Like so, so something I hate a self-hating sandwich. A wrap yeah. is a self-hating sandwich. Yeah. Just get a salad. Yeah. Or like open sandwiches or deconstructed sandwiches. Yeah. Like, what is that? Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Well, I think that they gluten intolerant people. But well, that yeah. Cool. Well, well that, uh. <laughs> but but, off, but often open sandwiches are on regular bread. No, just true. Kind of served, so, true. True. So I feel like. True. It's funny, you know, because Carl's American, I've spent time... Like, It is, I would say, one of the biggest distinctions between American and Australian everyday cuisine is the almost total absence of good sandwiches here. So, yeah. like, whenever I'm in America, that like, you know, one of the first things I do is go and get a good sandwich. Yeah. I, feel, I feel like this... And also, sandwiches have such a great regional inflection. Yes. So, that, you know, you go to different places, there are different sandwiches yeah. available. And this is very much about a particular yeah, kind a of regional... Yeah, where Homer's like, I'm sick of, I'm sick of you know... Uh, you know, a foot long. I want to have a hoagie. A, yeah, exactly. A hero. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the catalogue of yeah, sandwiches. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I mean, I 
And I've got to a point now. Where I like to have sandwiches for dinner. I mean, yes. I know that. I, yes, you really branched out. A friend would chop, you have three? Would you have sandwiches three meals a day? If, if it was healthy, I would. <laughs> I didn't, a friend Choff calls it pensioner cuisine, but I, I, I stick by. Also, as you know, I, I, you know, this is just getting onto my kind of dietary habits. Um, and, and lest I sound gluttonous, I'm the lightest I've been in eight years. I've lost ten yeah. kilos in the last six months, so it's yeah. all working. Yeah. Um, but I, I've I've grown less and less into hot meat foods. Yeah. So if I'm going to have dinner, it'll be the cold bar, the raw bar. <laughs> the like, raw bar I like yeah. my tartare. I like my, you know, I like my carpaccio. Ceviche. I like my ceviche. But also for lunch, I'm not a big fan of hot lunches or hot breakfast. So like mm. my ideal day, like cereal for breakfast, <laughs> yeah. sandwich for lunch, ceviche or carpaccio or something cold for dinner, a little bit of sandwich after dinner, the backup <laughs> sandwich. So I'm all about the sandwiches. And Part of, you know, the ecstasy and agony of living in the, in the West is from time to time you discover these incredible sandwich places on Uber Eats, but they're mercurial. They come and go. The quality is not always there when you get it delivered. So I'm, for, I'm forever in quest of the perfect sandwich, the sandwich sublime, which this show, I mean, can bring you back to the show. I mean, Well, it's all about that. Well, it's all about the, you know, attaining the extraordinary out of the ordinary. And there is, there is so the episode is remarkably simple. Like the, the guy returns, his brother has committed suicide. He takes over the restaurant and basically... It's a highly procedural episode. The mm. whole first half hour is basically about him creating a sandwich. I mean, mm. there, there is almost nothing in the film that's outside the orbit of that sandwich. Like mm. The sandwich contains his psyche. Mm. The sandwich is the protagonist. The sandwich, the sandwich <laughs> is the protagonist. And in, in a very dramatic way too, because what we learn is this guy has come from working in one of the best, you know, Michelin-starred restaurants in the States. Do the States have Michelin-starred? Or, I, think, I think he was, or yeah, Zagat. you know... Uh, Yes, so Michelin star restaurants. I think he was, and also at Noma. So yep. he's an incredibly acclaimed chef, so, former young chef of the year. Yep. Even wrote a cookbook, mm. and for whatever reason, he's decided to come back and take over, take well, the reins of his brother's to kind of to save shop. to save the store. And and one of the big plot points is that this sandwich store serves a whole lot of different things, including pasta. Mm. Um, but his first gesture is to say it's going to be all about the sandwich. Yeah. So everything goes into the sandwich. Yeah. So a lot and it's of it's a particular type of sandwich. It's a particular too. type of sandwich. So it's a yeah. Chicago and hot beef sandwich. And it's it's a simple sandwich as well. Yes. Like there's only a couple of ingredients in it, but in the kitchen, in the production line, every chef or every cook is attached to a particular ingredient. So yes. it's got a crew of about four or five, and each of them have to perfect this one ingredient yes. that goes into the sandwich. It's like a kind of Fordist assembly line, but yeah. for the hot beef sandwich. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and it's almost like, it made me realise that, like, and I could be getting a little bit highfalutin here, but it's almost like the sandwich is like genre. Like, you know, it's <laughs> like, like when it comes to genre, part of what makes the flourishes of genre good are the conventions. Yeah. So, like, the brilliance of a sandwich is because, like, any genre, it has a beginning, middle, and end, bread ingredient bread. Like... The fact that it has those constrictions means that when you have a sandwich with real flourishes, mm. the flourishes are all the more remarkable. So at the moment, uh, my favourite chicken sandwich, which we're probably going to have today, has this kind of nutmeg stuff in it, which is like <laughs> it's a conventional chicken sandwich. So this is why I hate this is why I hate the deconstructed sandwich. Why I hate you know sandwiches that try and remove the genre because like actually removing the genre constrictions actually makes your sandwich less original. Yes, do you know what I mean? That's so true. it's like so that's true. Uh, Similarity, same same but different. Exactly, and that's. And so it's a big part of the show, right? That I feel yeah. like I've been talking about sandwiches for fifteen minutes. So, but so you're really, so really, I think what we're, we're really boiling down to is your love of, of narratology and your love of sandwiches are actually deeply they're intertwined. Absolutely the same. They're, for me, sandwiches is a story. For me, and exactly, and, and the best films are like sandwiches: beginning, middle, and end. First act, sec, first act, middle, third act. Um, yeah. So like, 
And, you know, to be fair, the series, I think, venerates sandwiches in the same way. I mean, mm. there, there is nothing here mm. apart from sandwich preparation. Mm. And I mean, it's an interesting show, too, because it has such an intense energy. Mm. Like, it's almost like watching reality mm. cooking or, or almost like horror at times. Mm. So there's this kind of chaotic energy. The guy's life is on the verge of falling apart. And it's like he wrestles at and puts it in the sandwich. Like, mm. he takes, like his life is on the precipice of chaos. Mm. And that threshold between chaos and order becomes a sandwich yeah <laughs> one thing i think one thing this series does exceptionally well is capture the the chaotic energy of the yep. uh you know behind the scenes kitchen and the necessity for that chaos yes for a certain amount of controlled chaos to distill brilliance yes yes in sandwich form yes <laughs> so you could probably put this in the in the the same kind as this kind of trouble genius yep absolutely uh, stories and commitment to perfection i guess one of the best shows about cooking or movies about cooking is Jiro dreams of sushi. Have yes, you ever seen Jiro yes, dreams absolutely. Of sushi? So you might describe this this show as you know Jiro dreams of hot beef, <laughs> and it also reminded me in a weird way of like Whiplash. So it's like yeah, in both cases true. you have an artistic pursuit yeah. like drumming and making a sandwich, and in both cases they almost become a combat sport. Yeah, <laughs> like 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 boxing. It's like a boxing film. So one of the subplots here is that there's another guy in the kitchen who appears to be his other brother. I don't think they're brother. I don't or, think they're related. Or his mate, but, like he, he runs. Yeah, they're very close. So the main character comes in to take over the kitchen, and he wants to make it, you know, like high, high, you know, like high concept sandwiches or high con. But there's another guy who's been running the kitchen for a while, and there's immediate tension between them that almost comes to blows a yes. couple of times. Like there, there's a palpable physical tension between them that feels like it's going to spill into violence. So again, it's like it is like sandwiches as combat sport. Like yeah. it's like sandwiches and boxing. Yeah. kind of come together yeah. Yeah. and and for and for the main character um you know carmen yeah um you know there there's no clear sense of life outside of his work no. as well like in the same way whiplash you know the character had to be single-minded you know monomaniacal yep. in his pursuit of perfection remember that great time he breaks up with his girlfriend yeah, yeah. <laughs> like i need to be a genius yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and there's that similar sense here so um one of the i guess major struggles here in conflicts is is in an inner conflict between you know his desire to attain perfection mm. and you know the the impossible number of variables that can prevent mm. someone from mm. from actually attaining that mm. so in later in later episodes you see oh okay right i'm going to be on the pilot yeah you see you see that you know the quest the enormous quest um for perfection and the, the toll that takes on yeah, right. your mental health and well-being and um there's also a suggestion that Carmen is is an addict yeah, right. and attends, you know, the twelve step programs. Yeah. Um, but so really, his his single greatest addiction is yeah, work. The sandwich making becomes it's, a surrogate yeah, addiction. Yeah, it's funny, like that kind of slightly unwholesome side too. Like this did make me question myself a little bit as a sandwich lover too. Cause like, because <laughs> it's interesting the way it kind of presents sandwich culture as a kind of like artisanal culture. Yeah. And especially, I, I know how to put it exactly, but say like in this in this virtual world we live in, like this return to, you know, hands-on manual kind of stuff. So mm. the kind of sandwich store also has these old school arcade games yeah. that people play. And it's like kind of virtual, but also, you know, very embodied and very physical. So you have mm. this kind of artisanal bro culture. But it's interesting, the people who line up at the sandwich shop are, as the owner calls them, um, incel 4chan Snyder Cut bros so and, and you know th so it's almost like everyone who's into the sandwiches has this like slightly toxic edge like so there's this great scene at the end where all these people these guys are lining up outside it seems like almost dressed as ingredients yeah as sandwich ingredients and you have this confrontation between the artisanal bro culture of the sandwich shop and this more 4chan incel Snyder Cut vibe yeah and to the point where the other bloke who works there, like not the main character, but the other guy who he's in kind of combat with, comes out and fires a gun in the air yeah. to, to, to crowd the, the kind of 
to calm the crowd down. So it's like there's there's also a little bit of a sense here that the sandwich scene can be a bit precious <laughs> and a bit toxic. Have you found that? Well, I have found you myself found your forays into the sandwich I, scene. Have you? <laughs> I found myself saying, you know, like I think of sam- sandwiches being oh, this this kind of precious thing that's all my own, and especially in Australia, it's like oh, you're having I'm having a sandwich. But part of me is like, am I just a basic like toxic sandwich bro? I was like, am I just a sandwich bro? So I, I had a bit of a moment towards the end. Where I had to kind of I had to reconsider some of my life values. <laughs> I kind of question well, myself a bit there. I think the the other interesting thing about the sandwich scene as well, and I suppose I suppose especially about you know the recent veneration of food culture yep. and and chef culture as well is there's a meat culture yeah, in particular. There's a sense about um, a re, an attempt to reclaim an authentic an authentic relationship with place. Yes, as well. Yes, so absolutely. Yeah, these artisanal sandwich places and and any sort of small scale mm. uh, enterprise dedicated to producing a very limited menu which is very you know locavore yep. you know, centric so it's a clear he, he worked at Noma so he's sourcing local ingredients you've got to be there at the right time to get it yeah, at that place yeah. yep. it's a retreat from the global yeah it's yeah true a, true it's a you know it's a return to the kind of regional authenticity yep. and a response to this kind of you know you know amorphous chain restaurant and even the name of the restaurant like the sandwich store in Chicago land or something it's so neighborhood centric exactly yeah. exactly so there's that constant battle between you know what is really authentic and mm. what is really place bound and, and then what is you know a second order inauthentic appropriation yep. of that of that um that authenticity this makes and, me feel better about myself so like by liking sandwiches i'm fighting globalization <laughs> rather than yeah okay this, that's good i, I think thank you for that <laughs> i think that's right and and this does tap into tap into that as well mm. so you know given our cuisine has become mm. you know so you know hybridized and mm. globalized and you know homogenous mm. Then you know this return to the the uh, the regional mm. you know artisanal you know chef oriented aesthetic is clearly some attempt to deal with the chaotic forces of the global in our lives. I, I agree, and it's a, a kind of that moment where it's like you can how can I put it? Like it's you know you, you can access glo- you, know, you can access foods of all cuisines in most big cities, but when you have that local experience, you kind of know it, and there's something irreducible about that. And there's yeah. a great scene at the end where all the cooks taste the ingredients mm. and taste the sandwich and this kind of infectious energy goes around the room because they they all know it like yeah. you know when you know you know they all know that they've nailed that kind of local flavor yeah and it's almost like you can taste it yourself watching it yeah or you want yeah. to <laughs> and it seems like chicago as well is quite protective of its own yeah local food culture well, food scene. and you've you, experienced that right you've, ingredients so you've the spent deep dish time. pizza yeah oh. you know, the, the hot dog dragged through the garden you never have a chicago and hot dog with tomato sauce yeah 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 um and of course the hot beef sandwich but yeah. i actually never had the hot beef sandwich. okay right and i've never had a hot beef sandwich but i'm i'm quite intrigued well, this is interesting like when we were in philly a couple of years ago we i had a hoagie and it didn't really work for me but i'm okay. not sure i had it from the best place but um conversely the first time i had deep dish pizza in chicago like two years ago I thought, this was everything i dreamed <laughs> it would be like this, it was like why is all pizza not like this yeah like it was incredible so yeah it's yeah. probably something we haven't got as much in australia either no we, like, is, is there a brisbane pizza <laughs> is there an Adelaide hot? Do you know what I mean? No, this no, is the, we don't. This is the issue with pub food. Yes, it doesn't have that same regional. It's <laughs> well, in my rant. Yeah, Australia, we don't have that same no. regional connection. No, um, to cuisine. Mm. Um, yeah, so so like we've, we've discoursed a lot about sandwich culture. Yep. Um, what did you think of this, this pilot? Were you a fan? It was interesting, wasn't it? Like it was certainly more austere than I was yeah. expecting. Like yeah. it really is, especially the way it's shot. Very tight shot, focus. Tight, you know, yep. Camera that's lurching around. Maybe a bit seasick, really. More like a documentary. Like, yeah. More like, I mean, to the point where I wondered, is the actual guy a chef? I checked, you know, it wasn't. But like, mm. yeah, it is almost just like... Mm. A lot of the characters are very abrasive too, especially the, 
um, his offsider, the guy um, he works with Richie. Yeah, um, I found that's the one. You know, I think Bum noted this series, and the one. You know, I, I actually quite like this series and continued watching mm. partly because I'm quite interested in Chicago, the Chicago food scene. Yeah, partly yeah. because I love shows about food. Yep, um, and partly because I found I found the main character's pursuit of perfection mm. quite an interesting mm. narrative trajectory and one mm. that you don't often see mm. in TV. Mm. Um, but I did find Richie quite difficult to deal with. Well, it's, almost, those. it's almost like the Richie character, you can sense a little bit is like that more self-important yeah. and that more kind of reproachful, self-important kind of local, like the paranoid local identity. Yeah. Like no one's going to come in, no one's going to vary the formula. Yeah. And I actually thought like a bit from the pilot, there's enough volatility in the main guy's relationship with the sandwich, yeah, <laughs> there, there, there's enough intensity there. You don't need, yeah. you don't need, you don't it need the other guy to wield guns no. and stuff. No, it's exactly, just, it's, it's unnecessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's what like, did you think? Did you like it? I mean, it's funny. Like, I, I mean, I'm definitely gonna keep watching it. Yeah, it was, it was like I said, it was more austere and more inaccessible and just more bizarre than I was expecting. Mm. But in a way that really resonated, and in mm. a way that kind of. It was like this is the sandwich sublime I've been looking for. Like, I, 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 you know, maybe part of me was hoping for a kind of Netflix like styled, streamlined, you know, yeah, sandwich. Chef's table. But yeah, it is, it, and it's funny. Like it, it's not surprising it hasn't resonated with an Australian audience. I think either, given mm. it, it is sandwich centric. But no, yeah, it was. It was almost like a Dardenne film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like you know, yeah. like the Dardenne films have that yeah. kind of almost like vortex-like energy, like yeah, people just being yeah. swept along these it's, huge. It, it's definitely the antithesis of a of that that sheen mm. of a of a Netflix's chef's mm. table. You know, it's grungy. It's you know, it's a bit jagged. And the editing and on that, just something that's kind of quite striking about the pilot is only at the very end do you see the sandwich and the mm. ingredients. There's no fetishization of the ingredients. Mm. Only at the end do you see them, and then fleetingly, like it's not mm. framed in some kind no. of you know. Um, you know, it's like airbrushed way. So mm. the sandwich is like this fleeting object that's subsumed back into the process. Mm. So it was mm. it was a lot more dissonant to watch than mm. I was expecting, mm. but in a way that has made me really intrigued to continue. Mm. Mm. So Yeah, it reminded me of, you know, um, Anthony Bourdain's memoir, Kitchen I was, I was Confidential. Say, absolutely. Which I, I was going to say, absolutely. Um, it felt like it was drawing yeah. upon that jagged and energy. And the early couple of Gordon seasons Ramsey. of, of uh, Anthony Bourdain's TV yep. series yep. as well, which were much more... You know, uh, much more grungy. That chef aesthetic, the tattoo. Yeah, yeah. It's like Gonzo, um, Gonzo cooking. Yeah, Gonzo yeah, yeah. cooking. So, yeah, I, I really liked it. Mm. Um, I don't think it's a perfect show, yeah. but I'm I'm almost finished it. So, yeah, great. Yeah, and it's a, you know short episodes and mm. um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I'm, I'm a hard in with sandwiches, and I'm, I'm a hard in with this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so on to what I think is, in some ways, for me, the most extraordinary show this week. Um, this is a show from Joe Weisberg, who made The Americans. Um, it's called The Patient. It's very simple premise mm. in some ways. Um, incredible premise. Though. Oh, incredible premise. Um, two characters, Alan, Steve Carell, is a therapist. Sam, played by... That, that, that's not the name he initially gives, but his real name, um, Sam, played by Donald Gleeson, comes to see Steve Carell, comes to see the therapist, um, spends some time continually talking around his issues, then eventually... Uh, you know, abducts and imprisons a therapist, says, I'm a serial killer, I need you to cure me. That's the setup. Yeah, it's in treatment meets sore. Well, exactly. And <laughs> what's extraordinary is the in treatment, you know, reference might suggest is this is a 22-minute pilot. Mm. So it's... And an ex- if you subtract the opening and closing credits, it's actually 19 minutes. 19 minutes. So all that is told in an extraordinarily kind of compact way. Um, we start in Medias Race with you know, almost no exposition. I'm just going to call them Steve Carell and Donald Gleeson. Yeah. Like Steve Carell wakes up, chained to a bed. 
we then jump to a series of flashbacks, but the flashbacks never feel awkward. It's, mm. it's almost like they're part of the kaleidoscope of him gradually realising what's happened. Um, there is no dialogue that's not transactional. Mm. So a lot of it takes, the early scenes take place in silence. We only see him talking to therapy, to patients. Mm. By the end, he's only talking to Donald Gleeson. The one personal moment is when he returns his, well, you know, his dead wife's, his wife's passed away, returns her guitar to his son. Mm. But even then it takes place over the corner of what appear, over the counter, sorry, of what appears to be a pawn shop. Mm. So that's transactional too. So it's remarkably tight and remarkably focused. And that short kind of running span gives it... I mean, it's the way I saw this is exactly as you said, this, this feels to me like the spiritual sequel to In Treatment. Mm. Um, and it made me think, like, more generally, how how difficult it is to build a chamber drama these days on television. Like, mm. we've, we've talked a lot about how hard it is to create a really good horror series or a really good psychological thriller. And watching this, I was thinking that the, the basic reason for that is it, it's hard to do claustrophobia on television. Yeah. Which is weird because, you know, back in the day, back when television was an early medium or even when we were growing up, television really worked for claustrophobia. Small screen, you're watching it in your living room, like something like Masters of Horror even captures Mm. that. But in an age of streaming, Mm. television is so porous, you can jump so easily from one show to another. You can leave midway through, you can watch it anywhere, like on your phone, you can watch it out. So television has become so porous that getting that chamber drama vibe is almost impossible. Mm. So I think this series tries to do it through that short form approach mm. and it's funny thinking back to in treatment like i think what made it work within treatment was actually the the dvd architecture so i watched that well, well two things like with the original in treatment it screened at the same time every night mm. um you know it screened monday to fridays monday was the same patient tuesday was another patient so it had this very strict schedule that corresponded with the protagonist's own schedule so that made it feel very contained but the box set of in treatment is to date the most extraordinary and complicated box set I've ever seen because because there's so many episodes. A number of foldouts. Yeah, yeah. There's like there's like there's like ten discs. There was or something. a quest. A quest. The folding out process was quite easy, but the folding back the in. The folding in process was. Doing, <laughs> and I remember actually with my bo- copy of In Treatment just giving up. Yeah. And keeping that you know keeping them in different places, but you know watching In Treatment, I remember that the box set was so complex that I had mm. a very strong sense of containment just by that fact alone. Mm. Whereas when we watched the reboot of In Treatment, remember, it was very different. It was much more porous. It was set in LA. It was bright and sunny. It was in an open plan house. Uh, a lot of it was on Zoom. So that almost suggested, I think, that this this intense chamber drama of the original In Treatment cannot exist mm. in a streaming era. And this show tries to capture it partly through that brevity mm. um that like which mm. that radical brevity yeah it's which, so it's so pared back oh this, it's incredible isn't it yeah i mean yeah. What, what did you think like i thought i just thought it was yeah it was I, incredible again um to have a show that's the premise is incredible mm. it's a show that has enormous confidence in its premise because mm. everything else about the show is so sedate mm. and pared back mm. it has a very beige tone mm. um even though i believe it's probably set in la is it I don't know. Like I, I thought I saw snow outside at okay. one point. It seems yeah, like you can't like even tell really where it is. New York or yeah, it seems like it, it seems like there are fir trees outside yeah, where he's in prison. That's but, probably right. But yeah, you know, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. It's got a it's got a very beige mm. um, tone. You know, the, the main character is is a very self contained character, mm. the Steve Carell mm. psychologist character. He wears you know beige um, sweaters. Mm. Um, he lives a very beige life. Mm. Um, he lives a I guess he's he's 
experiencing enormous grief and loss mm. but the way he's chosen to deal with that is become even more self-contained mm. reserved. and reserved mm. um, and you can tell that he's damaged and in his professional life he's you know the role he plays as that kind of reflective mirror suits that that mm. completely reserved demeanor that he's adopted that you need for a therapist yeah you wonder whether he felt he couldn't help his wife in some way too i wonder if that'll emerge it's i mean physically or psychologically he's he's let her down yeah in some way and the way that this you know the horror that lies at the heart of this show mm. is is i guess alluded to early on is very subtle mm. and persuasive mm. and the the rather high concept premise makes sense in the in the context of this this psychologist's working through his grief, mm. um, having disturbing visions and nightmares, and I guess just experiencing the void at the heart of his life in the mm. wake of in the wake of you know obviously the passing of the love of his life. So, mm. so this kind of horrific tableau at the end where he's chained to a bed mm. um, and is negotiating with what we later discover is a compulsive serial killer mm. um, makes sense in the context of this this leader I, I agree and i think that you know at the same time the serial killers like the serial killer makes sense in the context of the show too because something i, mean, I was just watching it like you know the show is so keen to build a chamber drama right mm. it's so keen to contain things and it's almost like the serial killer needs that from therapy as well mm. like when he starts doing therapy it's too porous mm. you know there's still too much of a sense of connection to the outside world he doesn't feel entirely contained within that therapy space so mm. it reminds you remember in in treatment one of the objects like, so the original in treatment is always in one room mm. you rarely leave it um it's always raining outside and it always keeps cutting back to that ship in a bottle yes on his mantelpiece yeah. so that that sense that for therapy to work you have to be totally ensconced in the space mm. and in an era where that's harder to do mm. it, therapy doesn't seem you know at least this character to work as well so it's almost like what he does is he has to tighten the space by imprisoning Steve Carell. So mm. he kind of, he literally tethered him to a space mm. and tethered us to the space yeah. so that, that that self-contained space of therapy can work. And the series follows suit by being as, as short as possible. Yeah. So I kind of, I felt like the series, the structure of the series really gave, captured his mindset. It's like, it's like I need a space which is so cut off and so contained that proper therapy can happen. Yeah. And I think there's, a, there's an interesting dialectic between him and the and the serial killer early mm. on so mm. he accuses the serial killer you know you're not opening up mm. um you know you're not getting anything from this therapy mm. but there's there's a there's a similar sense that he equally mm. as a therapist is also not mm. not um not making the leap not making the leap yeah yeah and not making an emotional connection because mm. he himself is experiencing this grief which he is not even acknowledging or working through or dealing with so absolutely yeah so absolutely there's a sense and i guess for a chamber drama to work we need to have a sense of a mutual connection and a mutual hunger on both parts it's like transference and counter transference yes. yeah yes exactly yeah, right. yeah. transference counter transference yeah. and yeah i guess an, an an exchange of therapeutic you know um you know, interventions interventions between mm. both the serial killer and Steve Carell. So Steve Carell has literally forced himself to deal with his own psychological issues by being chained to a bed in the presence and the company of the serial killer here. Mm. So I think, yeah, that's right. For a chamber drama to work, and I think this is what really yeah. works about Blackbird as well, both characters need to be <laughs> nice. need to be working through their issues. They need to, you know, they need to be 
leaning on each other. I, I really like that because I think that that really captured. Yeah, so it's almost like it's almost like Steve Carell becomes Donald Gleeson's transference fantasy. Yeah. But Donald Gleeson becomes Steve Carell's counter-transference fantasy. Yes. And as horrific as this scenario is, it becomes the only scenario in which they can make therapy work. Yes. Which is, I think, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which what gives it that kind of what makes them both sympathetic yeah. and what gives it that intent because it's a two-hander what, yeah. what gives it that intensity is yeah. that the two-hander there's got to be that strange got, codependence yes yes yeah, that's absolutely. right that magnetic attraction absolutely. between both characters and you see that acknowledged at the end mm. when the patient says i you're the best psychologist i've seen i've seen three others yeah and i chose you and that's the last line of this yeah. pilot it, it reminds you just that that moment at sopranos where um you know tony goes home and is thinking about Melfi. Mm. And then at the same time, she's going to a party at the house next door and stands in the toilet and just peeps over at his house. Mm. It's like that mo- mm. that weird moment of absolute synergy between... Mm. I mean, that, that's fascinating. And yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that, that explains just my sense that th- this could get really twisty. Mm. Like there's such a codependence between the two characters. Mm. This could get really twisty. Mm. Yeah, so, yeah, I love that. Yeah, what's... I love what's- that. The most interesting character in this is not Siri, it's Steve Carell. Yeah, or, or the relationship. Yeah, or the relationship. The relationship, the relationship yeah. between them. And you, like you said, the, the that degree of codependence. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty incredible performance by Steve Carell. It's so self-contained. He's, he's channeling uh, Robin Williams vibes from yeah. uh, Goodwill Hunting. Absolutely. But also, <laughs> definitely, definitely in terms of style. I think like weirder thing too, this is Steve Carell's first short form series since The Office. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like that burst of, yeah. and But also Donald Gleeson is kind of, it could so easily be caricatured, couldn't yeah. it? But it, yeah, I love that. that. That's exactly what it is. Like there's that sense that over time this this codependence will resonate. Mm. And I wonder what they do with the space because they, they'll, they'll mm. need to expand it a little bit, mm. but not too much. Yeah. Look, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Mm. Like, there's, a there's a clear sort of mm. parallel here between the way the serial killer chooses his victims yes, and, and the way he chose, chose his, his psychologist as well. Exactly, because you see something in the victim that speaks deeply to your own pathology. Yeah. So like the, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's great. Like, yeah. It's like both of them are enjoying each other's symptom. Yeah, exactly. And that maybe, maybe it's not even a matter of, maybe it's not even a matter of a cure, but a matter of managing to managing enjoyment of the symptom yeah. that they have to learn through therapy. Yeah. So look, yeah. I, I'm an absolute yeah. hard in on this. I thought this was yeah. extraordinary. What a great premise and what, what confidence to pull it off in 19 minutes. And just, you know, again, something we talk about so much in this podcast is bagginess. Mm. I mean, this is, this is a situation where everything about the show that is radical and exciting, I think, boils down that decision to do it in 19 minutes. Mm. Like that. And how exciting, because, you know, often, you know, kind of Kyle and I like evening viewing or is it like you know long show short show and it's so hard to find a good short show yeah it's same after the podcast you know like it's yeah. so hard how great to have a thriller yeah. that's 20 minutes yeah like isn't that that I want more of that yeah which is going to lead us on to our archive corner yes in a moment all right on to our archive mm-hmm. corner for this week now I chose because we've been watching some fairly long pilots mm-hmm. something that was notable for its brevity. Mm. I guess the patient fit, fit that bill as well. It's a nice segue, isn't it? It is, yeah. it is. Yeah, that's right. So I was somewhat obsessed with the the streaming platform Quibi. Mm. I remember when we started the podcast, you were saying that we might even have special Quibi-centric ep- <laughs> episodes, right? That's right, yeah. that's right, yeah. So this was this was um, Jeffrey Katzenberg's, you know, you know two, $1 billion, $2 billion, $3 billion boondoggle. Mm. So it was a, a platform that what, was... I've never heard boondoggle. <laughs> what, what is that? 
<laughs> so it's you know an indulgent oh. in, indulgent you know um adventure i'm gonna use that so here oh, well quibi was was a, a streaming platform that was launched in 2020 and what differentiated this from other rival streaming platforms it was uniquely designed for mobile phones mm. so you know it, it was adjusted and you could adjust the the, the viewing experience based on whether you want to hold hold it vertical oh, or horizontal okay. so the frame ratio would would match that um but in particular the the episode length was was designed uniquely designed to uh be watched on in someone's commute so for example series were between five and ten minutes in length mm. and you know matching most people's the standard commute now well, Quibi, it's like the amount of time you have to focus on a commute yeah that's right I mean? that's like, right yeah, once yeah. you're actually settled on a yeah, train yeah. or bus or yeah. or whatever now Quibi did not last very long yeah. uh, partly because it was enormously expensive to produce all these series because right. the the creators of Quibi you know really went to the best talent um, hired a lot of big name uh, actors mm. so each each um, series ended up being enormously expensive to make and because it was exclusive to that platform, they couldn't license it to other platforms as well. So they had no real sort of secondary market for their content. Mm. Now, also, it launched at a very unfortunate time in terms of attracting people, you know, to watch things on their commute. So it was, it was launched in April 2020, mm. you know, the start of the pandemic. So, the, 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 I was thinking, in a way, this was like perfect pandemic viewing because, you know, I remember one of the big things about lockdown was just your attention span just going. <laughs> but I, I didn't realise the commute connection. Yeah. So that's why, cause yeah. it, you know, from, from an outset, it's like this is, there were times during lockdown where I had, I couldn't concentrate on anything for more than 10 minutes at a time. Yeah. So it's weird that it didn't pick up. That's true. You know? I, I suppose it was meant, it was designed to be watched on your mobile phone, yeah. on your commute, and no one was commuting. While moving. Every, while moving. While so moving. everyone was locked at home. And it, you know, that was that was the reason why the um, the creators of this of this platform, you know, argued that it failed so spectacularly mm. and so quickly. So it wrapped up and um, folded. Weird in, relic. Yeah, in yeah. I think by the end of 2020. Mm. So subsequently, all the Quibi shows were lost to time. A few were uploaded to YouTube, but a lot of people were wondering, well, what happens to these shows? Mm. Mm. Um, eventually. Um, they were they were sold off to various different streaming platforms. Mm. So Roku, which is a free streaming platform, I think it's ad supported streaming platform in okay. the US, um, acquired the rights to this show, which is called Fifty States of Fright. So did you watch it on Roku? Uh, no, I watched it on the internet. Because interestingly, I, I watched it on YouTube, and on YouTube there are compulsory ads between each of the episodes. Yes. So it fits the YouTube with rhythm yeah. quite well. The, yeah. That, very naturally. Yeah. Yeah. So this series. Um, is has I think quite an interesting premise. So mm. it's like the Sufjan Stevens premise, uh, for, amazing premise, <laughs> which is you know create a horror anthology based on each of the states in America, mm. and each mini mini zone, I suppose you'd call it, would be based on a unique piece of folklore sourced from that state. So I, I was going to ask you that: what's the pilot here? Because like. Mm. This one is divided into three. Did you watch all three? I watched all three. Okay, yeah. But technically, it seems like the pilot is the first <laughs> five, five minutes. minutes. Okay. So we're talking about the first three installments, basically, yeah, which yeah. is still only like 20 minutes. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Okay. That's I was right. curious what the pilot was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was expecting you to watch more than five minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, this was actually um, executive produced by... I'm just blanking right now. It was d- directed by Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi, yeah. It's and, produced and, by Sam and Raimi. This and, directed and, by Sam Raimi. And directed yeah. by Sam Raimi. So the, the first 
um, episode uh, is called The Golden Arm mm. and it's based on a Michigan piece of folklore. Well, this is interesting. I, I actually did a bit of research into <laughs> this. Okay. Like, so I, apparently The Golden Arm is like one of the most documented folk stories. Like there's, there's oh. some anthropological catalogue of folk stories and it, it, it's one of the most commonly told. And apparently a version exists in most cultures, um, although the meaning changes. And apparently Mark Twain actually popularised it in a piece of writing called How to Tell a Story. Oh. And it, apparently when, you know, I'm saying apparently a lot, um, when he, he's got a piece he writes about it where he describes what might be the original jump scare. So he says that when people would tell the Golden Arm story, you know, large gatherings, they would yell the last part as a jump scare to the audience. Oh. So it was almost like it became a horror comedy <laughs> spectacle by the end right, of, okay. of watching the audience get terrified. So it's this... So it's archetypal folk story that's circulated in a lot of different forms and been canonised in different ways. Yeah. But I was curious, and what's the Michigan twist? Like, what is it the logging background? I think like, it might be the logging background. I was background. curious where, because I was yeah. trying to find, like, what's distinctively yeah. Michigan about this one? Yeah, well, it yeah. seems like they're obviously just the setting in this sort of pastoral okay. part of maybe they chose, Michigan. And maybe they deliberately chose a very canonical folk story just to start it off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So a bit of background about this mm. folk story. Uh, we have a, a woodcutter played by... Uh, Travis Fimmel mm. and his wife played by Rachel Brosnahan now mm. she is obviously someone who's very attractive she takes places great stock in her in her physical beauty um, I know her mainly from Marvelous Mrs. Maisel too yeah. so it was really <laughs> weird to see her in this kind of like more yeah sedate yeah yeah um, one day he enlists her to help him uh, cut down some trees he in the course of this uh, cutting down one particular tree there's an accident the tree falls on her arm and he has to make this terrifying decision to amputate her arm. On the spot. On the spot. Mm. So that is our five-minute premise directed by Sam Raimi. And it has all the classic mm. archetypes of Sam Raimi's mm. uh, directorial style. So quite kinetic editing, mm. uh, lopping off of limbs, uh, and I felt like, <laughs> blood splatters. I felt like and this is almost what the episode just is, like an ability to do the full spectrum from atmospheric horror to a gore fest. Yes. Like that's basically the episode, it's just atmosphere to gore. Yeah. Also his taste for the woods. Yes. I feel like he's got a good taste for the American woods. <laughs> that's true. Does that well. Yeah, yeah. That's true. So later on we see um, the immediate aftermath in, in part two where uh, Rachel Brosnahan's character is you know, traumatised by her amputated limb and she demands that he procure her mm. a, uh, a solid gold prosthe prosthetic arm, mm. uh, which he does. Not sure how he affords it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, I think he takes a second mortgage out and oh, okay, right. on his house, yeah, right. sells all his logging equipment okay. um, in order to afford this. And, and in, in, um, in part three, or mm. might be the end of part two, she develops a... Um, an infection as a result of the the gold dust She's on the arm. Gold disease. Gold disease. <laughs> the and, old gold disease. Yeah, and, but nonetheless, will not re remove her arm and uh, dies. Mm. Uh, part three, we see um, the log log cutter left with a horrible moral dilemma when he's facing bankruptcy. Mm. You know, does he retrieve the arm which she insisted she would be buried with, um, and you know, in order to pay off his debts. Or does he just face the, the worst financial consequences? And you can imagine um, the decision he makes mm. leads to a pretty... I mean, it's a lot of gold. <laughs> a, you know, horrific outcome. Mm. Pretty unreasonable request. You know, I demand that you, you know, sell off everything and mortgage everything so I can have a solid gold <laughs> yeah, yeah. aesthetic arm. Yeah, it's... it's yeah. Not, not even gold-plated? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true, true, true. So it, it, has, a, it has a very folkloric element, you know, mm. like a parable-like uh, quality. I mean, when I was reading, it's like just... There been like I said, there been lots of different uh, meanings attached in different cultures, but two of the main ones are beware of avarice mm. and 
let the dead take their possessions with them. So mm. like those are just two different meanings it's had. Yeah, with the Egyptian interpretation yeah. of the yeah, ladder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like it's yeah <laughs> to the afterlife. Mm. Um, but there are some extraordinary uh, Sam Raimi set pieces here. Mm. Well, including... almost each episode is just a set piece. Yes, it's just one set piece. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I think Sam, you know, he loves obviously the amputation of, of limbs, mm. <laughs> the blood splatter. Mm. He loves, loves the, uh, the, uh, the disinterring yep. of the grave. Mm. <laughs> and he loves the, uh, the jump scare um, and, you know, the, the, pan, the zooming, the panning. The, and that's almost the three episodes. Yeah. Atmosphere to gore, disinterment of body, jump scares. Yeah. Something, something I thought worked really well about this was like because the ending is so short. The last mm. episode is like seven minutes. It has the luxury to do a really impressionistic ending. Yeah. So the last ending is basically a series of terrifying gazes. Yes. Like it's her eyes opening in the grave, yeah. her eyes appearing in a photograph in the house, yeah. her eyes appearing behind a door, yeah. her jumping out the end. Like it's just, it's a really, it's all atmosphere and yeah. all impression in a yeah. way that just does away with the clunkiness that you sometimes have in a horror finale. Yeah. I yeah. thought that was really effective. Yeah, the, the premise of this show I think is quite interesting. It's mm. like, you know, twenty-minute horror mm. horror series like which is very self-contained works perfectly for that genre because it mm. cuts a lot of that exposition, expository fat, and you know, really or generally awful character development that characterises most horror movies. Or that need to. I mean, it's funny. Like, it cuts away that need that some horror films have to to spell out an overt message. Yeah. Like weirdly, I think the brevity of it makes the message quite elliptical yeah. and quite cursory and a little bit ambiguous by yeah. the end. What you're meant to take away yeah. from it. It's like an Aesop's fable or something. It is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, or, or like in modern terms, like a creepypasta, like mm. just this piece of viral content that's kind of... Mm. It reminded me of... We've talked a bit on the show about Channel Zero, which is you know, one of our favourite horror series. Have we done that for an archive course? I don't think we have, no. Have we? Yeah, it's, it's basically the premise of Channel Zero is that each season is based on a creepypasta, like a piece of viral internet kind of mythology mm. that circulates. And this was like that. Like this, watching this, it was almost like it was being spoken to me or told to me. It felt mm. passed down. Mm. I was just going to say, too, something else I thought worked really nicely about this is that when you've only got 20 minutes, you don't have that pressure for kind of tonal consistency. Mm. Like, and I thought it really captured just the weird, I don't know, syncretic or the combination of things that make up folklore. So at mm. times it was like horror. Mm. At times it was like folk wisdom. Mm. At times it was almost like a Disney fairy tale. Yeah. Like she says, I want to be a princess. I want to be the most beautiful. Someone asks where the golden arm comes from. She says, like, my prince... Like, you know, like part of what's weird about folklore is it has all these really different ingredients yeah. that jostle against each other. Yeah. And because at 20 minutes there's no pressure or capacity to streamline it into one of those things, you have all these really, it's very atonal and dissonant, mm. but in a way that is really resonant mm. and, and eerie and stays with you. And also mm. partly because the message is quite elliptical, mm. it's like it recovers the strangeness yeah. of folk wisdom yeah, at the heart of folk wisdom. Definitely. And I, I thought the, I thought this was actually really effective in terms mm. of horror. Mm. It was, it was really highly suspenseful. It was very creepy. And we have a, we have a, uh, a, a term that we use to describe how scary something is, which is called blanket, blanket territory. territory. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. How much you need to feel like, or how, how much you feel like, you know, retreating under a blanket um, to deal with the jump scares. So and, for example, I saw, I saw martyrs on the big screen last <laughs> night. I'm not sure if any listeners of the podcast have seen martyrs and I, I had, you know, that was, that was blanket territory the whole way. Like <laughs> I, mean, I actually didn't have a blanket with me. I had a jumper, but you know, it was, you know, it, it, it was that level. And the, the way this, uh, this um, episode ends is, the, the protagonist literally covering his head with a blanket mm, <laughs> and staring at the spectacle through the little chinks in it. Absolutely. And it, yeah, so and it's kind of funny just, just what, what you're saying about it. Like it, it makes me realise that 
you know, we've talked about how horror films have all this stuff that, you know, they, they don't always need, like the characterization, the meaning, but you realise that the length of the horror film and putting all that stuff in is part of what makes the ending cathartic, whereas here you have the fear, but there's not a lot of catharsis no. that comes with it, so you just feel, you just kind of feel unsettled yeah. by the end of it. Yeah. In a way that, um, I guess, like hearing a folk story, or like, yeah. I guess in our time, like hearing an urban legend yeah. when you're a kid or reading a creepypasta and not have any, having any clear way to contain yeah. or disprove it. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I thought this was like incredibly effective, yes. this, this opening, opening series and the fact that it was split across those, you know, uh, episodes lengths from five mm. minutes to, I think the longest one was eight minutes or nine, ten minutes, mm. um, worked remarkably well. I agree, and kind of a thing too, like just it reminded me a bit. Like I felt like this was the most experimental show we've done since Mosaic, mm. and in the same way, in Mosaic, it was amazing to see Steven Soderbergh style kind of intact in that you know almost choose your own adventure digital format. Here, it was kind of amazing to see Sam Raimi recognizably Sam Raimi, yeah, in five minute increments, yeah. Yeah, so I can't I can't speak to the rest of the episodes, oh, which oh, are oh. not directed by Sam Raimi. I was curious. I was saying, have you gone ahead and watched any more? Like, I, what, I haven't. What's the next state? I haven't. So the next state is Kansas, okay. America's largest ball of twine. Okay, interesting. Because <laughs> I feel like again, I mean, if, with this and um, the patient, I mean, there is something amazing about having a short form yeah. show to go back to. Yeah. This could become part of our if we can source it. This could become part of our post podcast. It could be ritual. It could be. So I mean, the the biggest disappointment about this is it just it doesn't have a current. Uh, valid streaming platform in Australia. And like the Sulf John Stevens project, they never got to 50 states. No, that's right. There's that's no right. Hawaii, there's no so Alaska. It was renewed for second, the second season, but obviously when mm. the Quibi platform went down, so did the show. Surprising, isn't it, that Quibi didn't sell it all to YouTube or something? Because like mm. I said, you know, you know it, it, was, it worked so naturally yeah. with the rhythm of YouTube. And those compulsory YouTube ads that can sometimes be quite annoying in a long video actually worked really nicely yeah. here to differentiate yeah, the episodes. Yeah, because it's clearly designed to be broken yeah. up in that in that way. In most, I mean, you've said that sometimes, as you've said, you, you almost miss the comfort of advertising or mm. ad breaks of giving the show structure. So, yeah. so I thought it was great. Uh, yeah, I think let's definitely source the rest and watch <laughs> it. Um, but speaking of post-podcast stuff, onto next week's Archive Corner. Yeah. Um, so this one is kind of also related to our post-podcast habits. So we, you know, we've been getting deep into the X-Files and just luxuriating in the style. Mm. I thought next week we might do Chris Carter's second show, Millennium. Oh, which okay. Came out, came, out in 19, nice. came out in 1996. Same kind of millennial vibe. And actually, I didn't realise it's based on an X-Files episode. Oh, it's okay. an extension of an X-Files episode. Interesting. We fa- I found a way to source it, thanks to our friend Dave. Um, it's not available on any streaming service in Australia. Wow. But I have a copy. So in true millennium style, in true Chris Carter style, you know, it's a bit of an underground text in itself. Wow. So it's never been released on streaming services here. Um, but our friend Dave has a DVD copy. So we'll watch that. Um, we'll be able to lend it to each other. So, yeah, next week we're going to... The truth is going to be even further out there. So we're going <laughs> to think deeper into that Chris Carter mindset. All right. Look forward so to it. Next week, Millennium. Um, I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club.